last week, um, this is the second of a two-part series dealing with uh, our identity in Christ and the importance of that. And, and last week, we looked at Moses, uh, one event in, in Moses' life where he uh, presumed upon God and killed an Egyptian overseer. And the point was that our identity influences how we behave, and that means that our identity influences whether or how we follow Christ. The reverse is also true. How we follow Christ influences our identity. And so last week we saw how Moses' pridefulness in his destiny led him to act outside the will of God, although he was within the purpose of God. He was indeed called to be a liberator of the Hebrew people. He was presumptuous. And rather than obey God and seek God's will for God's plan and God's timing, Moses acted in the flesh out of his own will and out of his own timing. And the results were disastrous. He had to flee Egypt. He never saw his mother and father again. And for 40 years, he was separated from his people. And it all grew out of how he had perceived himself rightfully because of a miraculous rescue, an extraordinary upbringing in Egypt, and then this fortuitous opportunity where he decided to visit his people and saw an overseer uh, beating a Hebrew slave, and Moses killed him and buried him in the sand, and he thought no one else had seen it, but he was, he was wrong. So now we're going to do the flip side. Not, and the result of Moses' action was out of his pridefulness. Now we're going to see the flip side where sometimes you can be so down on yourself, feel so, uh, uh, have such a poor self-image that you don't respond to the will of God. So let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for this opportunity to just look at one of the great men of the Bible who's so much uh, like we are, but, but greater. And, and we see in Moses some of the very things we ourselves struggle with, and we see how you in your graciousness dealt so lovingly with Moses, notwithstanding his failure. You are a God who not only saves, but you restore, you redeem, you guide, you guard, and you give us a deeper sense of who we are in Christ. We ask you to cause that to really come alive, that the, that the Holy Spirit will so stir us this morning that we will begin to look at ourselves anew in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if, if you have your bulletin, I am going to read from Exodus 3, verses 1 through 15. It may, yes, it's on the screen behind me. So if you'll follow along, um, now Moses has fled Egypt, and, is, and he's living uh, north and east of Egypt in an area called Midian. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to the Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that 
Though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And he thought to himself, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a land good and spacious, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh and to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? What will I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you will say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. Now, right on the next page, you will see an outline, and let me give you the headings for my outline. Number one is that Moses' past influences how he perceives himself. Moses' past influences how he perceives himself. That's on page seven. And point two, Moses' identity influenced how he responded to God's call. And three, the gospel transforms our identity. So starting off, we see, um, I want to talk about this word humility, because Moses elsewhere in the Bible is described as the most humble man on earth. And as defined by the world, humility is often synonymous with timidity, lack of self-confidence, a pushover, weakness. It is not a positive trait. In scripture, humility has a very different meaning. In scripture, humility means surrendering to the will of God. That is true humility. Surrendering to God's will in all things. And Jesus, of course, is the true picture of humility because he always did those things that pleased the Father. Well, pride and lack of self-confidence share a common characteristic. Both involve self-consciousness rather than Christ-consciousness. 
with both attitudes, self, not Christ, is in the driver's seat. This story gives us clear evidence of how low Moses' self-esteem had fallen. And I'm going to deal with that part in the second division of my talk. But what I want to turn to now is something that actually happens a few chapters later that shows how low Moses had fallen in his own eyes. Because Moses, in this later chapter, is en route to Egypt, and God afflicts him because Moses has not circumcised his son. Now, we can read right by that and not understand the significance of what the scripture is telling us. But for a Hebrew to read this, they would understand what an incredible event this is that Moses had not circumcised his son. The failure to circumcise his son is a profound picture of the depths in, of Moses' sense of loss, his sense of loss of identity as a Hebrew. Circumcision was critical to the Hebrew because it was his entrance into the covenant with God. When God uh, saved Abraham and then his son Isaac, he instituted um, a sign or a ritual that every Hebrew had to obey, um, and that is to be circumcised on the eighth day as your agreement, your identification with the covenant of God, and that you were coming under the covenant of God. And so obviously the little male boy didn't make the decision, the parents made the decision, but they were saying, I and my household are under the covenant of God, and I'm doing what it takes to bring my male heir under God's covenant. In fact, the full name of circumcision is, uh, means the covenant of circumcision. We call it a bris, but there's a longer name in the Hebrew, bris milo, which means the covenant of circumcision uh, performed on an eight-day-old male, eight male infant by a moil. Moses himself was, of course, circumcised by his parents. And when Paul later was giving his credentials as not only an apostle, but a believing Jew, he started out, he started out listing his credentials with these words. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Meaning that he was under the covenant of God. So circumcision was the Jewish male's birth certificate and proof of citizenship all at the same time. That Moses had not circumcised his son meant that he felt completely cut off. Oh, that was an unintended pun. Uh, <laughs> he was completely cut off from all the promises of God to which he was rightly heir as a circumcised Jew. In fact, he felt so cut off, so hopeless, he did not even go to the trouble of having his son circumcised. I mean, after all, what's the point? All his hopes and dreams were destroyed. Uh, he is just going to live out the rest of his days uh, and then die. Um, I'm sure to his family and to his friends in Midia, Moses seemed normal, a nice guy, good father, reliable citizen. 
and they weren't completely oblivious to the gaping hole in Moses' heart. His quiet desperation, his deep sense of failure and loss. And maybe you are one of those fortunate people who has never felt like Moses felt. Uh, I have felt like Moses felt, and I have at times been at the brink of despair, as some of you well know from years ago. I know what it's like to seemingly have things crashing around you because of what you've done. Not because events out of your control have occurred, but because you have done things that have brought terrible results or what you fear will be terrible results to your doorstep. Some of you may be feeling like that uh, today, that there is some huge mistake you have made at work or in your marriage or maybe your divorce and your divorce because of something you did in the past or your marriage has been severely wounded. It's not dead, but it's, uh, it's wounded and it's struggling because of something you've done. Or maybe there's a relationship with a friend or a sibling, something you once said or did that so hurt them that they, they don't want anything uh, to do with you. Or maybe your finances have been turned upside down. And, and you made a terrible investment when you knew you shouldn't have done it. You, you did things with your money rather than use the money wisely. And, and, and now you're in this predicament. Or there is a, a moral failure. And you're so embarrassed about it, you, don't, you just don't want to talk to anybody about it. You don't go to the prayer team out there. You don't go to the pastor. It's a moral failure that you just, it's like having a lion sitting in the corner of your room at night and you can always hear it breathing. Maybe there are words that cannot be unsaid or acts that cannot be undone. And when you think about these things, and sometimes we are able to push those things away because we stay busy, but sometimes we get quiet and that thing just comes rushing back at us and we feel worthless, or defeated, or a failure, or a hypocrite. And to make matters worse, we're too ashamed to get help and talk about it with someone. And so you just try to stuff it into a corner of your mind, and most of the times you're successful, but every now and then you're not, and that thing just comes eating at you. If you've been there, then you can identify with Moses when God calls to him out of the bush. So now I want to turn to my, my second division, that Moses' identity influenced how he responded to God's call. God comes to Moses when Moses has already written himself off. He is no longer relevant to the destiny of his people. God comes to, um, in, in his mind, Moses no longer has a place in the covenant of God. He is no longer an heir to God's promises. He has failed God, his people, his family, himself, because of his presumptuous act 40 years earlier. You have to understand that when Moses killed the Egyptian, he was in the prime of life at the age of 40. Now he's 80 years old. 
Uh, when he was 40, he was on the cover of the Egyptian Time magazine. And uh, Barbara Walters was interviewing Moses, tell us about your latest battle. Oprah had him on her last show of the season. And, and maybe about 20 years after that, there was a show on television. Where is he now? You see those now. What is he doing now? Well, that may have been 20 years after, but by now, nobody thinks about Moses. There's no, there's no question about where is he. He is written off. He is irrelevant. He's out of the picture. And that is how he sees himself. And so this second event, last week I talked about the first event that influenced Moses so profoundly, and that was the killing of the Egyptian overseer. And now the second event is the burning bush. Uh, and this second event comes after Moses has dramatically failed. He is no longer a prince in Egypt, no longer muscular, strong leader. He is an 80-year-old fugitive tending his father-in-law's sheep. You know on television when they want to show how pathetic a husband is. You know the typical setting of the uh, hen-pecked, spineless husband is he works in his father-in-law's company. Right? You've seen it. Whether it's a drama or a comedy, you've seen the type. This is Moses tending his father-in-law's sheep. Uh, now, before, when Moses, before Moses acted presumptuously, he was in the right place, Egypt, from acting from the right position, a prince of Egypt, and in the prime of his life, 40 years old. But now, Moses' identity constrains him to disobey God in a different way, but the result is the same, disobedience to God. He not only disagrees with God, but resists God's call on his life, and he raises four objections when God says, I'm going to send you to free the people. Now, this is exactly the destiny that Moses had understood he had from the moment he was a little boy on Jacobed's knee. This is the destiny he had in his mind when he slew the Egyptian overseer. But now as an 80-year-old fugitive, that destiny is, is gone from him, even though God has come to him. He didn't go to God saying, I want my destiny back. I want a relationship with you. To him, that was over. God comes to Moses. And so Moses' first objection in response to God's commission is very simple. He says, I'm a nobody. Who am I? I'm a nobody. So who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? His second objection is this. No one will believe me or accept that you have called me. I mean, he's been out of the picture for 40 years. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, well, what's his name? What am I going to tell them? Moses is so wrapped up in his negative self-image, his complete lack of self-confidence, that he has the nerve to be sarcastic with the living God of the universe who is standing before him. 
It is amazing that God simply did not take the fire from the bush and put it on Moses. Leave the bush standing, but incinerate Moses. You must understand that Moses is fighting God here. And he's not doing it respectfully. Then Moses raises a third objection. He says to the Lord, I have never been eloquent. Listen to this. Neither in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Now, this, you know how sometimes you tell your children to do things and they come up with the silliest reasons why they don't. So God has been having a conversation with Moses for what may be two minutes. And Moses says, in this whole two minutes that you've been talking to me, I haven't become eloquent. Isn't that silly? And he says, look, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past when I was in my prime and everything was going right, nor since the two minutes since I encountered you in this bush. Um, and his fourth objection says, send Aaron, his older brother, send Aaron instead of me. And Moses is arguing with God that God, although omnipotent, although omniscient, and although sovereign, has chosen the wrong man. Moses is saying, I'm not ready, I'm a failure, I screwed up, I'm old, I'm a has-been, I'm insignificant, no one will pay any attention to what, who I am or what I am. Now, all of that may be true. All of that may be true. So what does this attitude look like in your life? Um, I was uh, visiting my mother in uh, Chicago back in June, and she loves to watch Dr. Phil. And they were doing an intervention on a whole family that had gotten involved in drugs, mother, father, son, and daughter. And one of the uh, panelists, if you will, who was helping Dr. Phil was a former drug addict who has cleaned up his life and has really become uh, uh, successful. And the, 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 the family of four had all these excuses about why they were in drugs and why they couldn't get out. Things that had happened to them in the past which had pushed them into drug addiction. And and and. Phil, Dr. Phil made this statement. It was so important. I, I wrote it down. And my mother doesn't have one of those systems where you can play it back. You know, the DVR. That, so, but he said, you need to decide to walk out of your past. You need to decide to walk out of your past. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're the one who blames God or others for your condition because you see yourself as a failure. You never volunteer or offer to help because after all, who are you and what do you have to offer? Uh, maybe you resist or resent people in leadership because their leadership reminds you of your own lack or failure. Maybe you feel wrongly pressured and strangely resentful when your wife suggests you need to be more of a leader in the home or your pastor says you need to step forward in leadership in the church and you feel put on the spot. Well, leave me alone. 
You don't stand up for what is right. You instead shrink away from conflict and confrontation. You're so insecure you don't like to be around other people, especially those who appear, appear to have what you believe you lack, whether that's education or money or success or whatever. Or maybe you're too insecure to recognize or accept God's call in your life. Now, you may be thinking that I'm saying that one of you is going to be a pastor. That's not what I'm saying. If you are a Christian, if you have given your life to God, he has a call on your life. He does not reserve it for somebody who's a pastor or a pastor-to-be. Every person who receives the, the salvation of Jesus Christ has a call on his or her life. Your poor identity, your poor sense of who you are, mires you in self-pity and activity, inactivity. So when, Paul, when God calls upon you to do something, you say like Moses, I'm not ready. Pick someone else. Or, or you simply say, no as if you and I have the right to say no to God about anything. So just stop for a moment and ask yourself these questions. In what way are you telling God no about something? In what way are you saying to God no? Next. What sin is causing you to beat yourself up? What past failure, moral, financial, or otherwise, still today depresses you or demoralizes you or saps your energy? How is some past event preventing you from experiencing more deeply today your identity in Christ. So that gets to the third division where I, I want to park my car a little longer. And this is the gospel transforms our identity. We've talked about how influences in our lives shape our identity. And we've talked about how our identity, our sense of who we are, influences how we act. And the question naturally arises, what can I do? I want to look at how God dealt with Moses on the issue of identity. In uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, Moses asked God a fascinating question. Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now God's response to this question is very interesting. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Now, first, it's important to understand what God did not say. God did not say, Moses, 
You are one bad dude. You are my Captain Hebrew, the Hebrew equivalent of Captain America. You are strong. You are brilliant. You are a leader. On and on. He didn't say any of that stuff. All those books that tell us how to have a better self-image, how to look at yourself, you, you go in front of the mirror and say, I am somebody. I can conquer the world. I can heal myself. I'm going to be successful today. God didn't do any of that to Moses. <laughs> what God did say is, is, is so revealing. In effect, God says to him, it's irrelevant who you are. Your background, your education, your sins are in one sense irrelevant to me. The one thing is that I will be with you. I have a plan for your life and I will succeed. I will be with you is the cornerstone to identity. God, and, and that's why the name Emmanuel is so amazing. Isn't this, so here is the gospel in a little conversation that went right over Moses' head. Because we know that the name for Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. And so here is Moses so steeped in self-hatred that when God appears to him and, and gives him the realization of the call on his life, on his destiny, Moses says, I won't do it. Who am I? And God says, Emmanuel. I, I am with you. And I don't know where you are in your life today, but wherever it is, the key to your identity is that God is with you if you have received the salvation of Jesus Christ. Now, some, some quick observations. We live in a me culture and a me age. We think life begins and ends with us. To us, it's very important that we understand who we are to figure out our identity. That desire is understandable, but it has the potential of leading us off the path of God. The first key thing is to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. You want to know yourself? You want to know yourself? Know God. Because self is something God reveals. How do we know ourselves except by going to the creator who made us and said, teach me who I am. By knowing God, I mean receiving the salvation of Jesus Christ. Knowing God recognizes that we are sinners who desperately need a savior and that Jesus Christ alone saves. God is the only person whose identity is whole, pure, unchanging, and uncreated. See, he is the self-existent, self-sufficient God. He needs nothing and no one. That's why, who do I say I am? That says I am. I am what? You name it, I am. God is and always will be God. Jesus alone is self-sufficient, self-existent, complete perfect and whole in himself, needing no one or anything. He doesn't discover, he doesn't discern, he doesn't explore. He knows, because everything is his creation sprung from his heart and his mind. 
Jesus does not need anyone or anything. You and I are not Jesus's mini-me. We do not complete Jesus. Rather, Jesus completes us. Jesus may use us to carry out his purposes, but he does not need us to carry out his purposes. He will accomplish all that he wants to accomplish with us or without us. He will be glorified with us or without us, but he will be glorified. So here's the key point. Only Jesus Christ can transform our identity so that we can be the men and women God created us to be. Jesus transforms us through his gospel. The gospel is not the bad news. The bad news is that Bill McCurin is a sinner. My sins have separated me from God. I am rightly the object of his wrath. I have created the hell that I am bound to enter. I cannot bridge the gap my sins have created, but God came in the flesh to men. We cannot go to him, so he comes to us. We cannot identify with him, so he identifies with us. And Jesus takes on himself all of our sins. I wonder if you noticed the very strange thing God said to Moses in verse 12, if you, if you turn to it. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. Now listen to this. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people up out of Egypt, you will worship me on this mountain. That's Horeb, where they are right now. They're having this conversation at Mount Horeb. Now, in other words, God is saying to Moses, you will know I have called you to liberate the Israelites after you have obeyed me. You get it? God is saying to Moses, you must commit to me before you know whether I have called you. You must obey my faith. That's what faith is. It's commitment before knowing. See, I am committed to Christ. I believe I'm going to heaven. But I have not gone there and seen the shack or the house that I'll be living in that says uh, Bill McCurin residence. You know, I'm going to have a little shack. My wife's going to have a big palace because she had to put up with me. And, but, but I will be able to see it through a telescope. But, but see, that, that, is a, that is a commitment after knowing. We are required by faith to make our commitment before knowing. Um, so, um, God is saying to Moses, you must commit yourself to me before you will know whether I have called you, and you must obey by faith. And this passage of scripture is very much like the statement Jesus made in John 7, when he's talking to a whole group of disciples and listeners, and he says, my teaching is not my own, because he's being challenged by the scribes and Pharisees of speaking unbiblically. He says, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. Now listen to this. If anybody chooses to do God's will, 
he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. In other words, he says, we must commit ourselves before we will know whether Christ's words are true. You want to know whether God sent me? Obey me. And in obeying me, you will see that my words are true. So Moses asked God, how will I know you have called me to liberate the Israelites? And God says, obey me. Just do what I tell you to do. And when you and the Israelites worship me on this mountain outside Egypt, then you can say, my goodness, God has called me to free the Hebrew people. In other words, the key is commitment before knowledge. And that's just another way of defining faith. So let me give you an analogy. Just go back uh, to the time when I asked Dana to marry her. I said, Dana, I will always uh, love you. And knowing me, she's correct to ask, how will I know you'll always love me? And my answer is, marry me and you'll see. You see? You get you with me? Christians are required to walk by faith. There's no way around this faith commitment. When God says to Moses, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt and all of you worship me here on Mount Horeb. These words also parallel what God told the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 7. Listen to this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which, of course, is the name belonging to Jesus, which means God with us. And the sign God promised Moses is that the people would be led out of Egypt. And the sign Isaiah foretold was the son who would lead us all out of our spiritual Egypt, that is sin and death, would die on the cross in our place. How do we know that God is real and loves us? Because he died on the cross in our place. How do we know that we should commit to him, that it's safe for me to put my life, my career, my marriage, my family into his hands? Because God became flesh and died on the cross for you. Because of that, we can make a commitment to him now. We don't need to know the outcome because we know the cross. So uh, let me summarize with Galatians 2.20. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, Jesus' death gives each of us a new identity. Whatever, whoever you were before, you received Jesus' salvation, you are now the child of God and a joint heir of everything that Christ owns in the universe. So this doesn't matter whether you are a drug addict or former drug addict, an alcoholic or former alcoholic. 
uh, uh, somebody who's been sex trafficked or somebody who has been part of the sex trafficking oppressive industry, whether you are Republican or Democrat. And, and some of you have dual identities. You, you, you come from another country, but you live here. You, there, there are two different cultures that are sort of in your body working out your values. And it could be true even if you're in the United States, somebody coming from the deep south, coming to California, the people back south want to know, did they ruin you in California? And the people in California want to know, why don't you get rid of that southern accent? There are a lot of different pulls on who we are. But who we are is something that Christ reveals to us as our creator and savior. This salvation that we have, we do not earn it. We do not deserve it. Jesus has earned it for us and then given it to each man and woman who receives his salvation. Our new status, our new identities, our gifts of love and grace from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We must not waste these gifts through foolish pride and being presumptuous like Moses killing the Egyptian, or through a terrible self-image as Moses this week is resisting the will of God because of his past failures. There is only one truly good man. There is only one truly successful man. There's only one man who can say, I have done always those things that please the Father. I can say that for the moment that I'm lying in bed right before I wake up. In that split second, I can say, I have, in that second, always done those things that please the Father. As soon as I wake up, I can't say it. Identity can, can only be fully seen and realized as we abide in the divine, I am that I am. Because all true identity is in him alone and can rest, flourish, and grow in him alone, who is the only fully self-sufficient, self-existent, and eternal person. Our self-image needs to be rooted in Christ, not in our past or present, not in our failures or successes, but in Christ alone and his success on our behalf. Christ sees us as his finished work in the full fruition of our identity. Now, just bear with me, and I'm closing with this. You and I are time-bound. We have a past, we have a present, and a future that we do not know. But all of that is to God like a single sheet of paper. He can turn it, and he can make the future the present, I mean the past and the past, the future. He can look at it from any angle, upside down, right now with one glance. You and I look at one another, and what we see is, well, if you're looking at me, you're seeing a very flawed and unfinished work. And there are times that I behave in such a way that people could question whether I am a believer. Oh, my goodness. And you are not allowed to ask my wife any questions on this issue. <laughs> but when Christ looks at us, see, he's already looked at the finished product. You understand? It is a work that he's already done. He is at rest. He is not sewing this thing up. He is not laying brick upon brick. It is a done deal 
because it is his finished work. He dwells in eternity, and he already sees Bill McCurran or Sunil or Kathy already finished and complete in him. And so we look at each other and go, how did I do this? I, I swore I wouldn't do this again. And here I am doing the same darn thing again. And you wonder, how in the world can Christ put up with me? Because he is seeing the finished work in himself outside time. Do you realize? So we can rest in what Christ has done uh, for us. Uh, you know, Jesus specializes in using broken people. The desert, not the boardroom, is God's classroom. Our failures are his opportunity to empty us of ourselves and fill us with the spirit of his son. Isn't that what the cross says to us? Our sins are God's opportunity to show the majesty and power of his love. So I'm going to uh, step out and as the band comes in, I'm going to have you do something a little different. Uh, I want you to turn to the person next to you and each pray for the other that, your, that God would reveal in you the fullness of Jesus Christ. Now, don't walk out of here expecting to lay hands on people outside. And, and, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about resting in the knowledge that Christ is doing this incredible work in us out of love. So if you'll do that while the band comes in and then they'll start praying and we'll, we'll do the confession and my sweet wife is going to drive me to Mid-City. Thank you very much. <laughs>